Father, we thank you for this world that you have given us. Thank you for your son, which you have given us. And we know that all things are held together by Jesus Christ. And his great love for us. And as we start the sermon series, we pray for for a few things. One, we pray that we would see your your greatness. And in light of your greatness, we ask that we would find an appropriate image, an appropriate description of who we are as your children. And may that give us humility and may that fill us with wonder and awe of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting this sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Yay! You may have an interest, you may have a disinterest in the Apostles' Creed. I, I say that um, speaking from my own experience. I think there's an interest in the Apostles' Creed in that if you've been going to church for a while, you know that this this confession, this creed has been around for a long time. It wasn't written by the 12 apostles themselves. It was written um, by church leaders in the very early church, and they wanted to capture the essence of the Christian faith. And because it captures the essence of the Christian faith, you might approach the Apostles' Creed with some interest. You may also approach it a little bit with some disinterest because... Um, if you've grown up in church settings that repeat the Apostles' Creed often, maybe for you, you may have had a reaction like me where just kind of repeating it sometimes starts feeling like you're just going through the motions. Um, so, Apostles' Creed. Two aims of this series um, that I, I hope will happen and we're going to be doing this throughout September and October. And my, I aim that you would know and believe the Apostles' Creed, that you know it if you did not grow up in a church tradition that recited the Apostles' Creed much, that you would know it. Um, but more than that, I want you to believe what is found in it. And knowledge and belief are different things. I can know that there is an HEB at the corner of El Dorado and Clear Lake City Boulevard. I can know that. Does that have a profound impact in my life? Not necessarily. But what if I believed that HEB was the greatest of all grocery stores and that by visiting and shopping in HEB, all of my culinary dreams will be turned into a reality? 
Well, that may actually make a difference in my life. Belief makes a difference in our lives. Knowledge, 2 plus 2 equals 4, does that make a difference? I don't know. So belief is different from knowledge in that belief changes your life. I want you to believe the Apostles' Creed. Um, historically, the Apostles' Creed was used at baptism. When someone would be baptized, they would recite the Apostles' Creed. And let's talk about belief changing your life. In the early church baptisms, boy, there just seemed like there was a little more at stake when someone confessed to be a Christian and was baptized, this, this line in the sand moment, this line in the sand expression from them, Apostles' Creed, this is what I believe. Because when someone confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, in ancient times, there was some great risk involved. You risk persecution. You risk not being able to find a job because no one would hire you because you were a Christian. You risked death in some instances. And they would say the Apostles' Creed when they were baptized. And when they said it, it wasn't half-heartedly, it wasn't inconsequentially. I believe these things to be true in the core of my being is what was being said. I can't go back. They were powerful words, and they still are powerful words. So I'm hoping we will know and believe the Apostles' Creed. And two, the second thing that I hope will happen is that we would find great, you would find great encouragement in the Apostles' Creed. We're going to go through these statements. We're going to go through the first statement today of the Apostles' Creed. And I'm hoping they will become emphatic statements to you. So as the more that we recite this, and every week I'd like for us to stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed, that the more that we recite it, the more you would see these as emphatic statements in your life and that they would be encouraging to you. So I want to invite you, why don't we go ahead and stand up? And don't worry, if you don't know the Apostles' Creed, we're going to have it on the screens for you. And the particular um, version that we're going to be reciting is the one in our denomination's book of creeds and confessions and has slightly more um, modern language than what you may have learned decades ago. So here we go. The Apostles' Creed. Say it aloud with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I really invite you to um, to work on that. Memorize that if you haven't. I invite you to one of the Apostles' Creed small groups, uh, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, so that we can talk together about these emphatic statements of belief in the Apostles' Creed. And today we're talking about the first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I've titled 
the sermon, get off to a God start. Why? Uh, God, the Father Almighty, is the starting point for our identity, for your identity. That's the first point. Um, Maybe not the first one in your little note sheet, but it's one of those points. You can write that down. It's the starting point for our identity. In order to know who we are, we have to know who God is. And I want to open up to Psalm chapter 8. If you brought your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find one, hopefully, in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, One of our Bibles It's on page 535 if you're using one of our Bibles. In order to know who we are, we have to know who God is. Let's read Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than angels and have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you have put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, creation has long been a source of inspiration for people of all kinds, just as it was to King David, who wrote the psalm. You know, if you were to go to the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or to some pristine beach with crystal blue water surrounding it or some majestic waterfall somewhere uh, and just stand there. It's really hard to say, meh, as if you were driving on the Gulf Freeway to downtown. Meh, you know, because you're around this beautiful creation. Nature is inspiring. But the Bible points out that people can be inspired in a couple different ways. One, creation can inspire awe or ignorance. You can be at Yosemite and look at it, El Capitan and just be blown away in awe. God, you are, you are amazing. You have created this. Another person can see the same massive sheet of rock at Yosemite and say, well, that's really beautiful, all right, but not give any glory to God whatsoever. Creation can inspire awe or ignorance. Now, why the different reactions? Well, it's it's not because God is trying to stay hidden from from some people. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, the mountains, the seas, insects, animals, starry night. 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You go to Yosemite, and it's God saying, hello. You go to Niagara Falls, it's God saying, hello. But some people shut out that voice. How? Romans chapter 1 continues. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the reason that some people do not give glory to God, not inspired to awe, is because their hearts have become closed towards God. They've closed their hearts towards towards God. You can look up in the starry heavens at night, and you can either have a Psalm 8 experience, oh God, you are glorious, you can have a Romans chapter 1 experience. Awe or ignorance. Now verse 2 in Psalm 8 says this, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And the avenger there is not like, go, Captain America, avenger. It's it's the enemy. That's what the avenger was, your enemy. And that's kind of a strange verse. And every once in a while, we'll be reading something in the Bible, and you'll come across a strange verse like that that doesn't seem to make complete sense in the context of what comes before, it comes after it. One of those out-of-the-blue scripture verses, you're like, I don't know what that means, and so you just kind of skip over it. And, and Verse 2 can seem like one of those verses. God, you're majestic. I'm talking about God's enemies. God, you're majestic. I think verse 2 is just pointing that out, that God has enemies that there are people who have hearts that are darkened and closed towards God. Creation can inspire you to awe, inspire you to ignorance. You can revere God, you can reject God. And I want to think, what is rejecting God? What, what is that? It's this. Rejecting God is a refusal to bow our knee. There are, are some people who say Christianity is just a crutch. It's just a cushion. It's just people trying to comfort themselves. They say it is a way for people to comfort themselves by envisioning a false reality, envisioning false hope for eternal life that isn't there. It's just a crutch. And they dismiss the idea of God. And see, this is why we must begin our identity with, with God. Because if you reject God, if there isn't a maker in your worldview, then you have to define humanity in some non-religious, non-faith terms. A human being is just a machine, simply a sum of biological processes that are governed by electrical impulses, a machine that only exists through a random process of evolution and that we are only trying to extend our existence through survival of the fittest. If you reject God, then that is what you have to conclude that a human being is just a sum of biological processes. And for some people, that is not just a sentiment. It is a rallying cry. It is a rallying cry because they know if we are more than just biological functions, if there really was some 
sacredness to our essence, then they would be accountable to that which gave us that sacredness. And they refuse to bow their knee to their maker. For some people, rejecting God seems to be the en vogue, educated, sophisticated thing to do. But there is a truth that they just cannot get around. Let me talk about that. Rejecting God is embracing meaninglessness. So John Gray, not the one of the pastors at Lakewood Church in Houston, but the John Gray who is a philosopher in England, um, who also is an atheist, he rejects much of atheism. See, he says that many strands of atheism are still religious in nature. They simply replace the worship of God with the worship of something else. Namely, usually for atheists, it would be humanity, believing that human beings can be the end-all, be-all, that, that there is limitless potential in human beings. Many atheists hold deeply the idea that all people have dignity and deserve respect. And John Gray would ask, well, hold on a second there. Where did you get that idea? Who says that human beings have dignity? Some external source? And he says, don't you see, that thinking is still religious in nature. And John Gray points out, if you're going to be an atheist and say that there is no God, then you then stop thinking thoughts that extend from a belief in God like there being some objective value system, that there being something outside of human beings that says human beings all have dignity inherently a part of them and must be shown respect. See what he's saying? If you're going to reject the idea of God, then you also have to reject the patterns of thought that come along with there being some source outside of us that gives life its value. And of course, here's the implication of this. If there is no God defining what is valuable and invaluable, if there is no God that defines what is good or evil, moral or immoral, if that's true, then there really never is any crime against humanity. There can't be. If someone were to murder all of your friends and family, you could not, and there were no God, you, you could not say to that person, well, that's evil. All you could say is, well, oh, yeah, that's someone living by survival of the fittest. If you reject God, you have to come to the grips with the implications of that. And that is, the world would be utterly meaningless. Because who really cares what you do a hundred years from now? If, if, that, if that were so, if, if there were not life that extended, if there were not everlasting life, who would really care if you did good or evil a hundred years from now, or a thousand years from now, or 10,000 years from now? And John Gray would say, the universe just doesn't care what you do because he believes there is no God. It's all meaningless. 
so how does that sit with you? Probably not too well. And it doesn't sit well with many, many people. Even atheists, it doesn't sit well with many atheists. Very few people are willing to accept that. We want to say that we have dignity and our due respect. And in order to have that meaning, you have to have God giving us that meaning. Yet for so many people, there is a half-hearted acceptance of God, and there is a zero-hearted willingness to say, ah, and I belong to that God, and I submit my life to God. The, the tennis courts of Clear Lake City are abundantly full on Sunday mornings. I know that because I drove by it, and my community's tennis courts are packed this morning. And we see this frequent, zero-hearted uh, intention to to say, God, uh, you created me, and therefore my life belongs to you. It is not my own, and I want to live for you. And my friends, when we say, God, you are my creator, but I do not belong to you, that is simply an act of ignorance. God, our creator, means our lives belong to God. Because we are created by God, we are accountable to God. Look at Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God, and it is he who made us, and we are therefore is. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This isn't complaining that we belong to God. This is celebrating the fact that we belong to God, isn't it? So when the Apostles' Creed speaks of God the Father, it's reminding us he is our creator, and therefore we belong to him. So we must define ourselves first with who God is. And this creed is just forming this line in the sand. We believe God is our creator. And we belong to him. This is how we see the world, and it changes us. So let's look at two foundational truths about God that we see in Psalm 8. One, God is infinitely powerful. The prophet Isaiah once wrote, Lift up your eyes. Look up and see all the stars in the heaven. In the heavens. Who made these? He asks. And then he answers, chapter 40, verse 26. He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So God speaks and he fills the universe with stars. Not one of them is missing. Isaiah says. Now, the estimates of the number of stars in the universe kind of varies. We're not quite sure how many of them there are because, for one reason, we don't have a telescope quite powerful enough to see them all. But the estimates vary between 1 billion trillion stars and 100 billion trillion stars. So let's just take the smaller of those two numbers. Why not? Let's be conservative here. Um, That's what that number looks like. That is a lot of zeros. 
that is a lot of zeros. And those zeros uh, have, they're really kind of important because one, they, one, they point out you have to have a large space to contain those many stars. Um, so the closest star to us, other than our sun, is Proxima Centauri, and it's about four million, no, it's about four light years away. It is millions of miles, four light years away. And let me just give a, offer a, a, uh, a description of how far away Proxima Centauri, the closest star in the sun, is. If the Earth were the diameter of a human hair, everyone pick out a hair, pull it out of your head. I got three, and that's probably not good. Let's take this one right here. That's pretty, that's pretty narrow. If the earth were the narrowness of this hair in diameter, then Proxima Centauri would be, the distance away from this would be four times the distance of the earth to the moon if the earth were as narrow as this hair. That's how far away Proxima Centauri is. So let's talk about the number of stars, one billion trillion stars. If there were one billion trillion stars, uh, how many is that? If you were to stack human hairs, one on top of another, not lengthwise, not making a chain, but making a, a hair sandwich, if you were to stack them one on top of another, that's st- and if you had 100 billion, uh, 1 billion trillion of these little guys, that stack would reach from the Earth to where Proxima Centauri really is, all the way there and back. That's how many 100 billion trillion is. That's the number of stars, minimally, in the universe that God has spoken to being. He's the star maker God. Oh, my gosh. And God made those not through strength and toil. He just spoke them into being. Or as David put it, not through the strength of his arm did God make these, not not by flexing his muscles, but rather just by using his fingers. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, you know, with with your fingers, what can you do with your fingers? You might be able to put a model together. You might be able to um, wire up your home entertainment system. You may be able to sew a beautiful quilt. Those are the kind of things that we can do with our fingers. What does God do with his fingers? He positions the sun and the moon and... One billion trillion stars, just where they need to be. God is infinitely powerful. He can do whatever he pleases with complete ease. But what kind of God is he? Because that can be varied. Is he the kind of God that creates the universe and just sets it aside and leaves it alone, kind of like that That very skillful watchmaker that intricately 
crafts this wristwatch and then sets it in a watch shop to be sold and never bothers with it again? No, David says. David beholds this amazing power of God looking up. Oh, look at the heavens. He gets in tune with the power of God, and yet he knows this creator God is the same one who is intimately involved in his daily life. And he writes in verse 4, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Because you're the creator, God. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And that word for mindful there, what it means is visited. What is mankind that you have visited them? See, David was well aware that God visited him in those sheep fields where he was a shepherd as a, as a youth. He knew that God was with him in those fields, protecting David, who was protecting the sheep. And so David is, is, able, David is able to call God his shepherd. So when we say, I believe in God the Father, in the Apostles' Creed, we are saying something about God. Second point about God, God is intimately personal. He's infinitely powerful. He's intimately personal. You are a little lower than angels, and that is not a literal measurement of your value. Rather, that is a poetic statement of your worth. He's the star maker God, calling each one out by name, like human hairs sandwiched together, stacked out all the way to Proxima Centauri and back. And yet the Bible also says that God knows the very number of hairs on your head, that they are numbered by God. The Bible says that when even the littlest bird falls out of the sky, God knows that. He knows. The Bible says that God is so involved in your life that he knows every word you speak, even before you speak it. That's how intimately involved involved he is in your life. Every prayer request that you bring to God, he hears it. He knows it. And we can get a little frustrated sometimes when we pray, because sometimes it seems like, God, are, are, you hearing, are you hearing this? Are you hearing this prayer of mine? It doesn't seem like you're being very personal. And I think that's because God doesn't answer our prayers by giving us what we ask for. That's not God's MO for prayer. I'm just going to give them whatever they ask for. Because when you think about it, that actually is an impersonal response. When you give someone, something, whatever they ask for, that is indicating you might not know them too well, that you might not know what really is best for them. No, no. God answers our prayers by giving us what we would ask for if we knew everything that he knows about ourselves. That's how well God knows you, much better than you know yourself. And in this psalm, David is saying, you can trust God. He can put the universe all together, all one billion trillion parts of it, just with his fingers. Therefore, David 
reasons. Oh, he can easily manage every detail of your life. He can provide for every need of yours. He can develop a schedule, a timeline for your life that is custom-made to bring about his good plans for you. That's what God can do. He can handle every hurt because he can handle how to position all one billion trillion stars. And there's a word for this. And that is providence. God's providence. God's providence is his governance, sustainment, and preservation of his creation. He governs. He is in control. Even when things might not make you believe that, he is in control. He sustains in his providence. Psalm 147 says, that God covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. Now, let me tell you, that is a lot of he working, not happenstance working. The clouds don't happen to be in the sky. The rain doesn't happen to fall. The grass doesn't happen to grow. The clouds are there because God says be there. The rain falls because God says fall. The grass grows because God says grow. That's his providence. That's how he sustains and preserves all things. And so when you view God's infinite power and his intimate personal nature together, what can you have? You can have peace and hope. You can have peace and hope. Uh, One of our church's confessions is the Heidelberg Catechism. And Here is the very first question. This is the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only comfort in life? My only comfort in life and death is that I, with body and soul, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that apart from the will of his Father, my Father, your Father in heaven, not a hair of my head can fall. God watches over you. He visits you. He loves you so much that he visited this world by taking on human flesh and walking among us as Jesus Christ. You have infinite dignity and worth, not because of what you do, not because of what you bring to this world, not because of what you produce, but because God has given you that infinite value. Because God has paid, has given what is infinite costly, his very own son, Jesus Christ so that he could be with you. That is your worth. That is what you can say 
when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would start every day, even if we don't recite that in our minds, that we would know that in our hearts, that you are creator God, that you have created this new day, and you have done so joyfully, and that you are our Father, and it is your desire to father us, to parent us, to love us through that day, to be sovereign in our lives, to govern us, to provide for us, sustain us through the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us. And we want to thank you for that, and we pray that that would give us peace and hope every day. In Jesus' name, amen.